Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On House of Cards, a recap show from On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. I can't believe we've become this. Become what? Like everyone else. I've pulled in old White House hands, hacks, and policy wonks, and even the show's creator and cast, to assess, giggle, and yes, occasionally sneer at one of our guiltiest pleasures. It's about putting people back to work. People can't work if they're dead. On House of Cards, not your average recap show. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of On the Media and also of this On House of Cards podcast. This one is devoted to two episodes, seven and eight, and we're calling them A Change in the Weather. Joining me is the president of the Brennan Center for Justice and former Clinton speechwriter Michael Waldman. Welcome to the show. Great to be with you. And we also have former White House counsel for President Richard Nixon and author of The Nixon Defense, What He Knew and When He Knew It, John Dean. Welcome. Thank you. Okay, so we're covering two episodes in this recap. We'll start with the seventh episode. It's structured in a sequence of flash-forwards and flashbacks, and it really centers on Frank and Claire's vow renewal. There are two markers of time change, the Tibetan monks who are making a sand mandala. We're told it takes a month to complete that, and Claire's hair color. You remember when Hillary Clinton was first lady, she would change her hairstyle about once every six months, and it was a huge uproar each time she did it. Why did she change it so often when it was clear that it would always generate headlines and seem to diminish her role as a policy advisor? I don't know, because I think (laughs) after a while she kind of noticed that but kept doing it. Before we get into the core of this episode, the politics of domesticity, we'll look at domestic politics. And in his weekly radio address, Frank commemorates the 80th anniversary of the Social Security Act and then describes his plan to destroy it. Is this a good speech? Today marks the 80th anniversary of the Social Security Act. It has survived longer than many of its beneficiaries. We should all be so lucky to live as long as it has. But by the time the human body has circled the sun 80 times, its youth and vigor are gone. Joints ache, bones and muscles are weaker. The heart doesn't beat with the same power it once did. All of us must face this truth eventually. And when we do, we must hand the baton to the young, to those who have the strength to carry on our work when we are gone. Here's another truth. Social Security is dying. Now, in its 80th year, it must give way to a new, younger, stronger plan for the future. That plan is America Works. Well? (laughs) As absurd as AmWorks is as a policy and program, it actually does touch on a real thing, which is how you have this exploding cost of retirement programs and pensions and how that's eating into current expenses. But let's put that aside. (laughs) If I were arguing for it, I wouldn't go on an extended riff telling AARP and its members, you're all about to die. (laughs) 
<laughs> so please give way to everybody else. I think I might find a better way of making the same argument. But you do kind of have to find a way to unlock people's rigidity and clinging to the old entitlements. Mm-hmm. What did you think of it, John? I, I thought it was a little sappy. I, I could not envision, say, a Richard Nixon ever delivering that speech. I couldn't even see a George Bush doing it. I thought maybe a Bill Clinton could pull it off. But he wouldn't read what was written. So that no. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Michael, are you willing to tell the all that is solid melts into air story? <laughs> sure. That was the time I almost destroyed both the presidency and my own career in one, uh, <laughs> in one mistake. For the 1996 State of the Union Address, which had a lot about how commercial forces were undermining traditional values, I had a line that had vaguely come into my head from somewhere that we put in the State of the Union draft, which is that all that is solid melts into air with all this change. Everybody thought it was a great line, and it went in draft one, two, up to draft ten. And I said to an intern, you know, find out where it's from. This is uh, a story that only makes sense if you and listeners remember there was no Google and as the intern eagerly reported, it was from the Communist Manifesto by <laughs> Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. And it was just excised from the draft and nobody ever nobody ever knew. <laughs> and that actually became a plot point in a West Wing episode. So, no. you know, to make all the uh, blurring of reality. Mm-hmm. Okay. Frank invites a third person into his stormy marriage. This time it's not... Secret Service agent Meacham, as it was in previous episodes. <laughs> it's Thomas Yates, who he's hired as a kind of Amworks propagandist, but this writer actually wants to write a biography of Frank. They're hanging out in the White House residence. They're getting drunk. They're playing video games. Claire comes in like mom and tells them to knock it off. They move to the study. And Tom, ever the shrewd observer, notices that they sleep in separate bedrooms and asks if there's trouble in the marriage. Frank tells them about the fight on the plane, how they said things they couldn't take back. And then when Frank realizes how much he's let slip, Tom provides some reassurance and my nomination for the least credible moment this season. I have no interest in salaciousness. <laughs> you know, I was thinking watching that that there was some similarity to Ronald Reagan when he brought in Edmund Morris the biographer, to be his uh, shadow. And Morris wound up writing fiction. Um, and, and, <laughs> That's right. And, 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 he wrote his worst book. He wrote his worst <laughs> book and wrote himself in as a fictional character. Right. And the, the sort of notion of Frank Underwood as, as a swimmer really was evocative of Reagan as the lifeguard. <laughs> wow. Uh, see, that's deep... Uh, deep analysis. Deep analysis. <laughs> that's not even on Wikipedia. When you were in the Nixon White House, did you ever want to write about him? Uh, it never occurred to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the first writing I ever did about the Nixon White House was my testimony. Ah. <laughs> I don't think I don't think that's what anybody had in mind for my writing. <laughs> well, a, a former colleague of John's, William Sapphire, would take every successive generation of White House aide out to lunch, myself included, and urge us to keep notes <laughs> because it felt that it was our duty to history to pay attention. Well, everyone knew Sapphire was making notes, too, and with some trepidation. No one knew exactly what he was going to do, and Nixon did not fully trust Sapphire. He was one of the ones who got wiretapped, if you recall. Right, right. The egocentricity of bringing in a novelist to write this and really to soak up your greater glory is pretty common, I think, among these presidents, And but they're very ambivalent. One of Eisenhower's speechwriters had just written a kind of a tell-all book 
when Kennedy came in and he said, I don't want anybody taking notes. We're not going to have something like that. And then the Bay of Pigs happened. And he turned to his aides and I said, I hope you're all taking notes on this because <laughs> if we don't write these books, nobody else is going to. When you were in the Clinton White House, did Taylor Branch get brought in by Clinton? And then, as we heard on a previous podcast, Clinton withheld the tapes from Taylor Branch and that really screwed him up. Yeah, they ran the McGovern campaign in Texas together in 1972, and Taylor was in charge of the hippies in Austin, as I understand it, and Clinton was in charge of the good old boys in the courthouses. And I think between them, McGovern got about 30 percent of the vote in Texas. But they had a fight after the campaign was over in which Taylor said, that's it, I'm done. This is nonsense. I just can't care anymore about who sits where in the motorcade. Mm -hmm. And Clinton said to him, but Taylor— Deciding who sits where in the motorcade is the first step to ending the Vietnam War. <laughs> it was such a great, you know, encapsulation of their minds. They really didn't talk for a long time. But then Taylor came in, helped actually with Clinton's first inaugural. And we, I didn't know that he was doing the, the book with Clinton, but he would come in every once in a while when we needed some good writing. You know, I know Taylor pretty well also. Yes. And what he would do is go in the dark of night and drive home after his sessions that were recorded and then make his own recording of what he could remember from the session they just had. And he actually does a book later based on his recollection of what's on the tapes mm -hmm. because Clinton doesn't give him the tapes and he squirrels them away in a drawer where he's pretty sure that no one else knows they're there and – they obviously uh, got around any of the subpoenas that were flying around in that era. We should note that Taylor Branch is a Pulitzer Prize winning writer who did an incredible couple of books about Martin Luther King and the uh, civil rights movement. This is no piker. No. And Clinton really looked to him also on racial and a lot of other policy issues, too. Mm -hmm. We're going to move on to episode eight, because let's face it, not a hell of a lot happens in episode seven. Here we see the Underwood White House handle a classic test, an impending weather catastrophe. So in the fifth episode, you'll remember Frank used FEMA money to support Amworks, and now there's a big-time hurricane named Faith barreling towards the eastern seaboard. The tension is something anyone could have predicted, really. I, I wonder if either of you can remember in your administrative experience this kind of stress leaving out Monica Lewinsky for a moment. <laughs> I remember a weather stress the weekend after the uh, Watergate break-in. There was some flooding and <laughs> the Potomac was rising. <laughs> that script is implausible. <laughs> the symbolism is too uh, too. I know. Too it's naked. really hard to believe. You know, Clinton, it's funny because he'd been a governor and there was a hurricane where George H.W. Bush had not done well in Florida. And Clinton thought that that was a real weakness of Bush's presidency. He was very focused on FEMA and hurricanes. It was something people used to mock that he was a little gubernatorial in his mindset. But it was all, of course, before Katrina and people didn't think about it as such a national catastrophe. The kinds of things like that that we faced were the Y2K crisis, mm -hmm. which uh, nobody remembers where all the computers on New Year's Eve at midnight at the millennium were going to all shut down at once and – Planes and trains would stop running and there was a war room. There was endless meetings and I to this day could not tell you if it was a brilliant job of crisis management or the whole thing was made up. You know? Actually, what I've heard is that if certain issues hadn't been addressed, there would have been a real mess. So now it's laughed at as a kind of trumped up 
nightmare. But in fact, it was averted. You insiders with your your defenses. Brooke, one of the things we kind of slid over from the prior episode Mm -hmm. is when Frank is told that the money he's taking out of FEMA is going to deplete the FEMA funds so they will not have sufficient money should there be a hurricane. Then the hurricane's at the edge of the United States. And he has to go back to Congress, who is already angry with him for dipping into those funds for a program they don't support. And he is told several times that Congress is going to take an action. So that's what makes the storm particularly critical in this episode. Right. Frank asks for $8 billion in new FEMA funds. They say they'll give him $10 billion, but there's a catch. He can't use any agency funds for Amworks ever again. This is the question I have about this season. That kind of confrontation over spending is actually what happens. It's what happened with President Obama and the Congress. It certainly happened with Clinton. It is actually the kind of thing where these guys tend to think ahead four or five moves. I wanted to see Frank Underwood be Frank Underwood on this. He took it rather passively. He seemed rather surprised that they would try to condition the funds. It is pretty obvious that they would. All these presidents, when they get into office, they bring with them who they were and how they got there. And even if you think they're not going to, it comes out in the end. That was true with Lyndon Johnson. It was true with Bill Clinton. It was true with Richard Nixon. Frank Underwood, when he gets into office, seems to have almost too much reverence for the office of the presidency. He no longer does the implausible but mesmerizing things that he did in the first two seasons that got him there. I want him to kill someone for Amworks. Not yet anyway. Not yet anyway. But other characters have more interesting amorality than, than he does. Now, that sometimes happens. I mean, it does. I would, well, I would say Bill Clinton in his first couple of years felt that being president was different than what he knew, which was being a politician. And then once he figured out it was all politics, even the foreign policy, he was much better at it. What about Nixon? Did he have reverence for the office? I think he did have reverence for the office to a degree. <laughs> he, he certainly had no problem impounding funds, as you recall, which is not unrelated to Frank dipping in funds that were not allocated for the purpose he decided to use them. So basically, he refused to spend money that had been appropriated for various programs. Exactly. Drawing on a precedent from Jefferson, if you will, and other presidents had impounded funds. In fact, we had an, an act of Congress in 74 that expressly prohibits the impoundment of funds by presidents. It's a direct result of Watergate. In fact, there was some consideration of putting that in the bill of impeachment, but then they realized that uh, he had pretty good ground to stand on with Jefferson and some others, so they backed off on that. But speaking of the issue of revering the office, he understands that he either has to not sign the bill and kill his administration or sign the bill and kill Amworks. Later at the cabinet meeting, he says he wants everyone to be perfectly honest with him. And he admits to a culture of fear and and having generated a lot of yes men and asks people to raise their hand. They all raise their hand. After Claire raises her hand. Exactly. And gives them permission. And then we see a different kind of Underwood. You have all worked very hard to get Amworks up and running. I don't want to sign its death warrant until we have exhausted every resource available to us first. So I need every department to draft a proposal of what they could do in response to the hurricane. And if we still fall short, I'll sign the bill. Is that okay with everyone? Which, John, brings me to the question that Michael has raised. In Bob Woodward's review of your book, The Nixon Defense, 
He wrote, The new tapes depict a White House full of lies, chaos, distrust, speculation, self-protection, maneuver, and countermaneuver with a crookedness that makes Netflix's House of Cards look unsophisticated. So I love that line. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's compressed an awful lot in there. But I can't disagree with him for the tapes that are the basis of the Nixon defense. They are certainly Nixon at his worst. They are certainly show all of the evil that can go through a presidency right there. He doesn't kill anyone on those tapes, does he? He doesn't. Uh, I was in the witness protection program, so (laughs) (laughs) who am I to say? I survived. (laughs) One of the things that your book shows so brilliantly is that even in his most conspiratorial moments, so much of what Nixon was grappling with was lack of knowledge, getting it wrong, and not being able to predict the fairly obvious outcome of doing X gets you Y. One of the things that's been so fun about House of Cards is the ability, which is really rare, of these characters to sort of pull off their double crosses and keep their secrets. And that, in a way, is what has been the most fun to watch and the least realistic. Maybe it isn't so unrealistic because look at Iran-Contra, where they did pull it off in a sense, Mm -hmm. where they went to the dark side and got away with it largely. That was under the Reagan administration where they filtered money through Iran to get it to the Contras down in Nicaragua. They sold weapons to Iran. Through Israel. Israeli weapons to Iran and used the money for... The Contras, you know, they protected the president. It didn't get as far as Reagan. He, we now think, might have had early signs of Alzheimer's then, but uh, they certainly made it look that way at the time. So who was a better president, Nixon or Frank this season? (laughs) Well, you know, I think Nixon would enjoy this series. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, who was the worst person? Well, murder is a pretty heavy yeah. word. And he didn't do it once, and it was twice. And with his bare hands. <laughs> right. This is On House of Cards. We'll hear more from Michael Waldman and John Dean in a moment. Something else is going on in this episode, sort of stylistically. There are two voices that are layered over the action. One is Thomas Yates, the author that Frank hired to write the book on Amworks. The other is Kate Baldwin, the reputedly tough Washington Telegraph journalist. And they run throughout the first half of the episode. Here's a clip that I thought was really illustrative of their respective projects. When Congress refused to support a peacekeeping mission in the Jordan Valley, the president deployed troops anyway, stating his authority as commander-in-chief. The ramparts of the fort were still a mile away, but he reached the point of no return. Turning back was no longer an option. With the world's eyes upon him, he continues to ignore precedent, convention, and some would say the law. Why did he cross that invisible line? Why risk his life despite the great odds stacked against him? Critics have been harsh, and yet most have stopped short of naming Underwood what he truly is, a tyrant. What drove Napoleon to keep marching toward Moscow, or Hannibal to cross the Alps? The warning signs are there. It's our responsibility to heed them. What kept a young Frank Underwood swimming onward? And what kept him from drowning? It's an interesting thing, the narrative device of pulling the camera lens back and having these dueling Greek choruses suddenly makes you realize you're talking about 
a president who millions of people are sitting around talking about. And the isolation of it, which is very palpable when you're there, I just had a hard time getting past how bad the writing was in both their instances. <laughs> I also thought, again, now this may be because I'm inured to this, but I so far haven't thought that the things he's done have been nearly as unilateral, nearly as problematic legally as what most recent presidents have done before breakfast. Oh, come on. Raiding FEMA that way? Appointing his wife over the Congress as uh, UN ambassador? I mean... Well, that's where there's a lack of verisimilitude because, of course, the Supreme Court ended almost all recess appointments last term, (laughs) and most viewers wouldn't know that. (laughs) But part of what I took out of that, which was perhaps not what was meant, but that the level of intensity on the part of the journalist didn't match the terrible things that he had done. I'm just stunned. You just don't think Frank is bad enough to to warrant this kind of treatment. We have had presidents, recent presidents of both parties who wiretapped without warrants. Who, <laughs> I mean, this is kind of typical budgetary hardball, although I will note that FEMA sent out a tweet making clear that the Stafford Act prohibited it from using its funds for this purpose. So. <laughs> And there's something called American Works that is apparently is a, a lobbying group that's very upset with Frank's program. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go to uh, Frank's presidential rival, Heather Dunbar. She's plowing on with Doug. That's Frank's former henchman's support. Doug arranges a meeting between Dunbar and rival candidate Jackie, who Frank's set up in a campaign promising her the vice presidential spot. And Dunbar proposes to Jackie that they both suspend their campaigns during the hurricane. And then Doug slips it to the White House that that's what's going on. It's very, very unclear to me at this point what game Doug is playing. Is he with Heather? Has he inserted himself as a spy? I don't know. But the chief of staff, Remy, delivers the news that the campaigns are going to be suspended to Frank. And I have that tape. Maybe you should speak with her before we consider this a crisis. I don't like your tone, Remy. You're blowing this out of proportion. Watch yourself. When I work for you in Congress, you always told me to be straight up with you. I wasn't the president then. So you just want me to apologize and be a yes man? I want you to treat this office with respect. You owe your staff that same respect. I gave you a position in the White House when no one would touch you. I don't owe you a damn thing. How long are you going to hang that over my head? Oh, it's like you want me to fire you. You couldn't, and you know it. Not right now. Seth and I are the only two soldiers you have. Great scene. That last line underscores Frank's isolation. My question is, the picture we have of Richard Nixon is of a president driven by paranoia and suspicion. Did you notice any parallels there? Absolutely none. Nixon had no facility whatsoever for confrontation with anyone. He was at his worst in those situations. A parallel kind of situation is when he asked me to resign. And he does it with great fear, with trepidation. The minute I I tell him I won't sign the letters he's given me, he packs right down. And it flashed through my mind at that time. I said, I'm dealing with the leader of the Western world who's not nearly as tough as he pretends to be, that Nixon just couldn't deal with personal confrontation. Well, then let me ask you this. Did you ever witness him down to just a couple of friends I think he always had limited friendships. I was always curious, and the Secret Service came under my office after Alex Butterfield left, and the liaison between the protective detail and the White House fell to me. And I 
I was kind of curious, for example, about what Nixon did when he was off, say, with Bibi Rebozo. As I got to know the head of the protective detail, I we'd get into conversations. And I once asked, I said, what did the president and Bibi do when they go out in the Bibi's houseboat for hours? And this guy kind of smiled. And he said to me, he said, well, I, I was out there on the detail one weekend, and I was sitting up on the top of the roof where they had us posted, and I heard nothing down in the cabin, so I slipped my shoes off and went down and kind of peeked in the window, just curious. And he said, they were just sitting there, not talking. So I talked to some other people on the detail, and I said, what do they do on when they're walking along the beach? And the agents told me, to the man, they said, they don't talk. <laughs> He just wanted a body nearby, I guess, if he wanted to talk, and Bibi was fine with this arrangement. A few of the telephone calls between Bibi and the president didn't fall under the personal, and when I listened to all those tapes, I heard some of them. And it's a nice relationship, but it doesn't seem very deep, really. As you know, Clinton had almost the opposite compulsion, which was he had so many friends, so many acquaintances, would call everybody day and night and would be up late talking and talking and talking with this incredibly varied circle of of people. But very often, he would not include his staff in that circle. And one of the things that was noteworthy when the Monica Lewinsky scandal happened and that week before the State of the Union address unrolled and he was really hanging by a thread, he sort of turned that charm on his own staff and had enough self-possession to realize he couldn't chew us out, no matter how we felt. That was not a week for chewing out the staff and telling him, I made you, I could break you, though that wasn't the norm. Nixon did talk to the staff ad nauseum, late into the nights, after he'd had that first scotch. I mean, he just freed him up, and he would talk to Haldeman or Ehrlichman or Kissinger, often to one or two in the morning. Or Colson was another frequent caller. With Clinton, too, one of the main criteria for working for him was the ability to stay up late. Because he would call at one in the morning and say, you know, I've thought about the speech tomorrow and now I know what I want to say. Can you come over? Frank Underwood really interacts very little with anybody other than Remy, his chief of staff, and Seth, his press secretary. Uh, and now his biographer, who seems to be hmm. kind of his B.B. Rebozo, mm -hmm. a non-political yeah. actor. Did Clinton have any of those? Taylor Branch. Mm -hmm. Taylor Branch. And there were other people, Tommy Kaplan, who's a novelist who had been his college roommate. He definitely enjoyed the interaction with outside friendly observers because he fed off of their critiques and perceptions. And Hillary, too. There are obviously many parallels drawn between him, uh, Hillary and Claire. You but, think? But from what I saw, what do I know? But for their actual relationship was so much more lively and kind of fun than what seems to be the case here. Interestingly, LBJ, by all accounts, treated his staff the way Frank Underwood treats his staff. He was very cruel to them and actually didn't get the best out of them. But watching this season, one of the mysteries, of course, is what is Doug up to. Why they would let Doug Stamper, who knows every single secret there is, just sort of wander around the landscape without really having him, as LBJ would say, inside the tent pissing out rather than outside the tent pissing in, again, seems implausible. And he is so unstable. It, it doesn't really make any sense. Other than it's mystery. But again, you had it with LBJ, as uh, Robert Caro's most recent book shows, at the very moment when Johnson becomes president, he had Bobby Baker with all his secrets. He had Walter Jenkins 
who had to resign and who had all his secrets. So it's one of these burdens that these characters have to deal with of the person who knows your your secrets maybe is themselves a secret. But you don't let someone else deal with them and hope it goes okay. I was talking to a couple of political reporters for a previous episode, and they noted that every politician, no matter how wonderful, has a Doug or several that will serve as their ids, that will do their dirty work or say the things they can't say. You mean successful politicians. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and I just wonder, the henchmen for Nixon, I think we know some of them, right? Chuck Colson mm-hmm. and Bob Haldeman and, to a degree, John Ehrlichman. And for Clinton? Dick Morris. Oh, yeah. D- D- Clinton had a very conflicted relationship with Dick Morris. He viewed him as the person who would do whatever had to be done. I mean, the hatchet man, the advisor who would advise him and help him do whatever he had to do to win. But Clinton didn't always feel so good about that. And he would ha- had this cycle with Morris where he would need Morris and then he would fire him. He brought him back to help win the gubernatorial race after he was defeated for the governorship. And Morris was his closest advisor. And then he they had a fight before Clinton ran for president and Clinton pushed him away and he was not part of Clinton becoming president. And then after things didn't go well in the first two years, he secretly brought him back but didn't tell the rest of the White House staff. And there was this attraction repulsion that was really quite fascinating. I don't sense that Obama has a Doug. I think that uh, Bush, too, certainly did with Rove. What about Bush 1? The one person who comes to mind, and I don't know enough to say this, uh, but Lee Atwater. Bush 1, if you remember, when he ran, had independent expenditures. Even in the pre-Citizens United days, those Willie Horton ads mostly were not run by the Bush campaign. They had a kind of a patrician sense that you did what you had to do and someone did it for you to get Mm. elected so then you could serve the people. What about Reagan? Good question. Oh, Lynn Nofsinger. Oh, yeah. Yes. Carter? Nah. No, that was his his problem. (laughs) (laughs) I think he needed one. (laughs) Do you think George Washington had a henchman? <laughs> a Doug? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, and Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to leave it there. We were joined for this episode by Michael Waldman, the president of the Brennan Center for Justice and former Clinton speechwriter. Thank you, Michael. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And John Dean, former White House counsel for President Richard Nixon and the author of The Nixon Defense, What He Knew and When He Knew It. Thanks so much. Thank you. On House of Cards is produced by Kimmy Regler with help from Claire Tennisgetter and edited by me. Katja Rogers is our executive producer. Jennifer Munson is our engineer. You can subscribe to this podcast and On the Media on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you go to iTunes, leave us a review while you're there. It really helps us out. And follow us on Twitter at On the Media. Next episode... Fraying staff loyalties and falling off the wagon. I'm not Peter Russo. I won't go like he did.